Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you crave technology that leads, if you appreciate design that inspires, If you want driving dynamics that excite, meet the one. The remarkable BMW 1 Series. Featuring front and rear parking sensors, cruise control, fully digital display with navigation and real-time traffic information, along with BMW's latest voice control intelligent personal assistant, all a standard. Meet the one with your own exclusive video consultation. Book yours today at BMW.ie. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and we're treating you to an extra episode in our fortnightly cycle this week because we're really excited to have been able to chat with Joe Miller. Um, now, for you guys who don't know, Joe is the former chief executive of Doncaster Council, but a year ago, she hot-footed it over to New Zealand and she's now the chief executive of Hutt City Council over there. Now, we've seen so much about how different countries are reacting to the coronavirus and New Zealand has really been one of those that has, I guess, set the precedent. Now, there are loads of different differences between us and New Zealand um, and the way that they're PM Jacinda Arden has handled things but we thought it would be a really interesting comparison to have a chat with Joe and see what she makes of it so here we are hi Joe thank you so much for coming on um it's really really good to have you on and for our listeners just so you know we're speaking it's 8pm here in the UK and I think 7am over there in New Zealand. Um, so Jo's got a cup of tea on the go, she's on a Yorkshire tea and I've got a, um, well I'm on a glass of wine. So I mean Jo, tell us I guess to start off with a bit about what it's been like over there in New Zealand and, and the response to coronavirus. Let's jump straight into it. Yeah sure. So uh, Jo, the first thing I'd say is it's kind of uh, surreal we're having this uh, discussion today it is a year to the day since I boarded a plane in Manchester to get here I left on the 16th of June last year so um yeah and my last piece that I wrote I think before I left was in the Yorkshire Post so uh, of course it feels a bit serendipitous um and I suppose when I'm going to start saying this one of the things I've had to be really careful and anxious about is kind of not appearing smug or, or, or that we know better because because that in itself causes division, you know? So um, so I suppose I'd start by saying at the start of, so, you know, I'm, I was new to my role, started in July at, at City Council, just over 100,000 people, New Zealand's seventh largest council, but tiny by UK standards. And in January, we were all working very you know, we were working hard thinking about a pandemic that was coming. You could see um, by the end of Jan, beginning of Feb, 
um, things were beginning, and that was our summer. But, you know, you got to sense something was in the wind, so to speak. And I think that, uh, and I know that immediately, as we, we sort of made some very early border decisions, the, the government made border decisions, and that was when the population went, okay, something's kind of happening here. Um, and then at the very start of March, um, we, the, the PM announced this level system. Um, but before she announced it, as a local government chief exec, we were working with central government to say, if this went from containing something to, uh, you know, locking it down, what would both, what would a ramping up of that mean in terms of public facilities? Um, and I, you know, speaking to UK colleagues, I think that sort of collaboration um, is is quite different. And speaking to my health colleagues, I know, um, say for example, Dr. Aisha Verrill, who actually was announced as a Labour list candidate yesterday. You know, really really smart epidemiologists and uh, people people who had worked in uh, China, in Hong Kong with SARS and the like, you know, they, they were getting their messages into the Department of Health, banging on the door saying, hey, this is really serious. So I suppose there's a big thing about listening. And whilst it's been led from the top, it has been this collaborative effort. And I think that is one of the things that defines New Zealand's response. So look, that's really interesting to hear about how you guys are working between local and national government, because that has been a slight criticism here, I would say. You know, the local leaders that I've been speaking to are really, some of them are quite frustrated over hearing, you know, announcements on the news before government's communicated to them and councils are the ones that are supposed to be putting them in place, you know, local lockdowns and things like that. So what is the communication between, you know, the two been like for you? What have you found? Yeah, so I think that the challenge for us, you know, we have we have some tiny local authorities with 30,000 residents. Um, and, you know, in a, so, so New Zealand's population is the same, is the same as Yorkshire's, 5 million, um, albeit that uh, the landmass of New Zealand is the same as the UK. So imagine Yorkshire spread out across the whole of the UK. That's a best way for me to describe size all that said 1.7 million of the population live in Auckland so you know it is a third of the population but as we tell Auckland the rest of us are two-thirds um so um so so with that in mind what you know what we were quite anxious about as local government it was was that that there was capacity and capability across all councils and so so you know the the, the bigger amongst us might have been able to get there and that's why we set up a joint unit with um, local government, so the equivalent of sort of the, the the staff side of it, the politics side of it, and the Department of Internal Affairs. Um, and we, uh, we we devised the guidance together. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We locked down. We knew that we had a feeling the lockdown was coming, and it came on the it was announced on the Monday and came into effect on the Wednesday, or maybe it was a Tuesday to the Thursday, I can't quite remember. But all of that Friday and Saturday morning before, um, I and a number of colleagues were in a room devising what the different levels looked like, what it meant. And we got that guidance into the cabinet, blessed and out again. Um, and, and what that meant was, uh, so, so daily during the, the build-up, to COVID and lockdown and through lockdown, 
every chief exec was getting a daily email that was that was blessed by government and blessed by local government. So put bluntly, what that meant is you knew it worked, you know. Um, and even now, I mean, now those things are weekly because we're focusing on recovery. So I think that's a big difference. And I mean, I think I, I refer to that as, as being about collaboration, about clarity and about communication. Okay, because one of the criticisms we've had here is that, you know, local authorities aren't necessarily getting the data that they need. So, um, for example, some of the testing data they're not getting through, or if they are, it's not on a granular enough detail for them to actually be able to make decisions on, say, um, local lockdowns or to know is there a cluster of outbreaks on on this street? But what you're saying is from your experience, the data sharing is potentially better over here and in place, whereas you're having to build that a bit more over over there in New Zealand. Is that is that the case? Um, I would kind of. Um, I would say, though, that, um, you know, look, the, I've worked in a couple of legislative systems now and the world over, um, people think that, you know, central government don't trust local government. Um, so, so there is a bit of that, but but it is far easier to communicate with with ministers and uh, and civil servants. And there is, it feels like there is a little less of a separation. Um, I can speak to a minister. I can speak to the head of a department. Um, you know, you're not sort of treated as a toffee paper on the end of their fingers. It's irritating. So I think that's different. And in, in terms of I mean, there are some things that local government does here. So, for example, it runs all the water infrastructure. Some of those councils are tiny and they're, they're running tiny bits. Of, yeah, all the social services are run nationally. And what COVID showed us, um, and I think this is where the UK is actually somewhat ironically ahead of, of here, but perhaps couldn't capitalise it on it, is the whole thing around joining up information around individuals who might have a housing need and a psychiatric need and an income need, you know, that it's they're all squirreled away in different places here, whereas there's a bit more data sharing in the UK to build on. So I would almost say that that, that, that some of the building blocks are there locally in the UK, if only government would respect them and use them. You know, um, I mean, it's been very anxious for me because obviously you're watching your family from afar and and I'm watching Donny and I'm looking at the, you know, I'm watching Yorkshire and looking at the death rates and all that stuff. Um, and, and it's been so frustrating, I think. And, and, and speaking to, to colleagues there, just knowing that um, you, you could have had more impact. You know, some of the things that, there's some things only government can, can focus on, like border controls. But some things could happen locally, I think, and could be more effective. Uh, whilst, um, whilst we were in lockdown, I had UK friends here. Uh, and they were due to fly back uh, on the 18th of March, by which time we were in lockdown. And they didn't actually fly back until the 25th of April. So we really tested our friendship, but it worked well. They stayed with us. They were in our bubble. But again, you know, they they went back. They went back to the UK, obviously, and were comparing things, but also just looking at the messaging. You know, everybody was glued to the telly here at 1 p.m. when the Prime Minister and the Director of Health gave their daily update and it was the prime minister and the director of health six days out of seven and that consistency of message um really counted so they were you know it was interesting as well for them they were comparing 
um, their experience in the UK than here and going back. And, and they said, you know, that when they left here and went, went back home, obviously they were desperate to see their families and they'd been away a long time, albeit that they couldn't really see their families because they were self-isolated and went into lockdown. But they commented that the, there was a, a clarity and a security in in knowing what really, sort of, A, the rules were really simple and you just followed them. And they found that very comforting compared to going back. So that's just another, another perspective. There, there is one thing, um, and this might be slightly put off provocative, but, but I feel it very deeply. Um, dare I say it, uh, and I'm desperate for the UK to get through this as, as much as anybody else, but I think there is a really hard and needed conversation to have in the UK about public life and the state of politics. Um, I wrote in the Yorkshire Post, no, I didn't. I wrote, I wrote, um, I wrote something uh, about the general election, again, observing that from afar. And, and leaving aside the politics, I think what I wrote there is, blimey, I don't know who I'd choose out of any of them, really. Um, I was absolutely honest. Um, I was able to say that then because I wasn't there. But the the thing that I that that really I found loathsome was that it appeared to be a winning strategy to keep the great British public in a permanent state of discombobulation. I don't know what to believe. And I think we've seen that before. I remember seeing it in the Scottish referendum. My husband's Scottish. His family were kind of torn in half around then. The referendum because you know it was like I don't know what to believe this says that the other says the exact opposite that got it was far worse through Brexit far worse and you saw that dividing of the population and then you've had that whole deriding of experts and that's through the general election and I think that that meant that the UK has been in a really difficult space come something that absolutely needs you to rely on experts of course messages are going to go through focus groups you know Jacinda's team of five million. Do I, you know, of course that was focus group to death. It's why, it's why she used it, and it's why we're now a hundred days out from the national election, and the other side are using it. But the strategy wasn't built on messaging. The messaging supported the cause rather than led the cause, and I think that's a massive challenge for the UK, where it doesn't feel like. There is that kind of collaboration and messaging between experts, politicians, civil servants, central government, local government. Um, so I go back to that collaboration, really. So I do wonder what this, like you're like you're talking about there, this kind of dismissal of experts, this idea that you know we're sick of experts. We've all heard the quote has done for the coronavirus here in the UK. I mean. You know, we've had people like uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Balance who have been heading up the daily press briefings with the PM and other ministers. And um, they've become kind of well-known faces as I um, sit here now, actually. I can see across the room I've got a Chris Whitty Appreciation Society mug um, sitting on my desk. But, you know, this idea that we no longer need experts, I wonder if that has played into the public consciousness as we've you know, look to move out of lockdown as people have started to get a bit antsy and wanted to get out of the house. We've heard in the last few days about the number of experts appearing at these briefings has lessened since kind of the start of June. 
And there was a report, which I should say the government does deny, that the chief nurse was dropped from one of the briefings when she refused to back the PM's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, over his um, trip to Durham and um, Barnard Castle. So I do, I, I take your point, and I really wonder whether we would have done better maybe if, as it sounds over there, there was this coherence, more of a coherence between the PM and you know the experts like you've had what's has it been that much of a close relationship absolutely so um so the so the cabinet uh, the prime minister and the cabinet um obviously were, were meeting very very regularly and um and the experts fed directly into the cabinet and the result came out and the, the public knew it and i suppose that's the other thing i would comment upon is that um the prime minister very early on said you know um, I'm asking New Zealanders to do things that were previously thought unimaginable to you for New Zealanders. And it's only right that I share with you all of the data that I have. And they say data here, I'll never get to say data, all the data that I have upon which I've based my decisions. So there's something about you, if, if power equals the power to take people with you, there is a fundamental Re- understanding here that in order to gain power i.e the power for people to follow you you have to give some of your power away and that's giving the power away of understanding the, the data and and you know I, I think that is the best of political science wherever you are and the worst of political science is spin and discombobulation and not answering the question so you know uh, did dominic cummings break the rules well i happen to think that he did and if I was an expert, I would say yes, for whatever reason, he's done it. Um, actually, I still need him, is, um, is, you know, is whatever, but we need to crack on. And I need those experts. And to, I think, to somehow kind of make it then the, almost the expert's fault because they're not appearing, actually is a bit of an own goal for people because it just makes people feel more uncertain, you know. How confident do, do you feel and others feel about going out? How more confident would you feel if there was a really clear and consistent line from experts and the politicians said, we are following those experts? Yeah, and it's going to be interesting as well to see what happens as we move out of lockdown and think has things changed? You know, there's a debate going on here at the moment about whether we reduce the uh, recommended space you leave between each other from two meters to one meter because it would make it easier for the hospitality industry etc but from what we've seen so far the scientists have not recommended that we do that but then there are those pushing to get the government going uh, the, the economy sorry going again and wanting to make sure that 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 can happen so i think that is causing a bit of kind of worry in people in not having those messages maybe always on the same page but also that's that's kind of science right they're not always on the same page yes. well and you, and you haven't been you haven't been through all these you know privations if you like to you, you've got to win the prize at the end of it haven't you you know it's a huge sacrifice people have made you know and um i mean it you know um, and it breaks my heart when i think about people who how do you choose who says goodbye to Mormon or you don't have any choice at all? Those most unbearable of choices. People can't have gone through that to 
to end up throwing away the prize, I don't think. Um, and I suppose that's the other thing that's felt a bit different different over here. And my friends who who were locked down with us said it is it's been very citizen focused. You know, it was it was kind of at the start, it was we are a team. We need to build a wall this team to to not just look after our own, but to look after others. So I think it kind of played to a real Kiwi. Um, thing in life you know and it's, it's about a team that whole team that as, as we can do it as a team we can't do it so it kind of wasn't the government saying just because we have the power we can tell you what to do they were saying we've got some we've got some really important data you know that kind of whole line around you know we locked down at 102 cases you know I think about that and she said we have 102 cases but so did Italy once. And that was the moment everybody went, okay. Um, but 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 again, doing that kind of I'm I'm sharing with you why I'm making this, I'm I'm explaining what it means, um, and and we need to do it as a team to protect protect others. Again, so I call it a very citizen-centered approach rather than a sort of hierarchical one. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I look at some of the other division that's happening and it, I think if we can get back to citizens and collaborating and being kind to each other, which is actually what I absolutely believe the UK is about, you know, um, spent 50 years there, I love it to pieces. Um, I think if we can get back to that rather than sort of war analogies and glory analogies and we've got the best this and we've got the best that do you know what this is a global pandemic that we don't know what's there all we can do is our best and be kind to each other and I think that's the kind of honesty people want I think you're right and you know you are completely right in that this isn't something we've faced before and it's not always going to be right first time either and you know we've spoken a lot there about the good things that we've seen coming out of New Zealand but what I'm interested to hear what you think also could have potentially gone better oh look totally um you know this is not this you know I, I describe New Zealand as being like on on uh, Scotland with steroids but with more sun and more fun and they throw you off bridges and stuff you know my husband's Scottish so so we're, we're very fond of Scotland but look it's not a land of milk and honey for everybody like the UK you know Māori make up 20% of the population, but 70% of the female prison population are Māori women. Um, uh, you know, unemployment figures that Māori young people are twice as likely to be unemployed, all those things. That's not because Māori are less clever or more criminal. It's because the, the system, um, the colonial system is systemically racist, um, and we have to change that. So, you know, just looking locally, this is, a, a, you know, some of the stuff we got wrong was, so is, is things like um, not knowing, so, so some of the things that were there before, so we've got a chronic housing supply issue and a chronic homelessness issue. And as we locked down, the need that, that sprung up around food parcels and welfare was, was almost overwhelming. And we managed it, but it, we kind of managed it just in time. And that was because we didn't really know what was happening behind so many of our doors. So, you know, working with our, our, our Maori organisations, you know, we would, we would speak daily. And 
we didn't know how many two bed houses had 10 people in them. So, the, and, and, and because we didn't have uh, local joined up public services in the same way that local government is there, uh, it, it meant that it was quite hard to, if somebody had a multiple need, it was really hard to get to them. And that's what, I mean, I know I'd have been better able to do that in the UK because even if the links weren't there nationally, they were there locally. So that's, that's something for us to change um, as, we, as, we, as we go forward. And you know we've had we've had this report here as well from Public Health England saying that Black Asian and minority ethnic people have been hit harder by the coronavirus. I I imagine that's the same thing that you're seeing over there. So we knew from Spanish flu, and and again this goes this is sort of more about what's happened. This goes back to information and what happens up front. We knew from Spanish flu that Maori were far more um far more affected than the New Zealanders of white European extraction. So up front, the government said, heck, <laughs> we need to, we, we know this is a potential problem we're facing in COVID-19. So they really targeted those communities around track and tracing and testing and um, working with Māori cultural organisations so that there was a specific vein of work. Now, we had you know, 22 deaths overall. But if you look at the cases that came from across the population, most of the cases were brought in through foreign travel. So uh, hence locking down the borders earlier. So, so we haven't had the same issue play out, but we were warned it might play out and we did something about it in advance. So as it happened, you know, touch wood, you know, thank goodness it didn't happen, but we were prepared, we acknowledged it. And I think you know, of, of, of course, I'm not surprised that's happening in the UK. You know, there was um, a furious moment for me in 2010 when the coalition switched public health funding from need to longevity. So if you lived a really long life in Surrey, all the public, you got far more public health funding than if you lived in, in Barnsley, Doncaster or Bradford, um, where you lived a less long, you know, you lived a shorter life and you lived the last 10 years of your life in poorer health. That was a reason to take money away. And that's an absolute blooming scandal. And um, I'm all for, um, I, I'm all for not everything being focused on need. You know, you do have to, um, I used to say to Doncaster, let's focus on, let's be defined by what we have rather than what we don't have. But surely you have to have some focus on need. Equity, equity isn't about everybody getting the same population, same funding per head of population. Equity is about giving people the lift up that people need. So if you live in overcrowded housing, um, if you have poor diet, um, then of course you are going to be more affected by by COVID nineteen. And and a lot and 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 you know some of those frontline jobs will be where those, you know, where, where Black Asian minority ethnic citizens are. And, and, and to not recognise that when it's put bluntly, blindingly obvious, is something that should be recognised and something should be done about it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise. And the fact that it is, is really the surprise in itself, isn't it? And I, I guess we're seeing it as well in 
the ever-present that we talk about a lot, the North-South divide, where we're seeing that the hardest-hit communities are, again, often often the poorest. And it's it's really sad to see, and I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise to any government, whether that's here in the UK or over in New Zealand, that the most vulnerable in society are going to be the ones hit hardest by this. I would say, because um, I is is that um, is that some of the stuff in the north, and it, it does happen in the south as well. But but I, I always felt different getting on, and I've lived in London and down south, so I can obviously I'm a Liverpool woman, but I can say both. Um, there is a sense of community and um, looking out for each other like no other. You know, that kind of whole Yorkshire identity, Liverpool, whatever the north, and and that's what that resilience will get people through. So. Um, big ups to the north for that and and, and how you capitalise and use that in a recovery uh, to make sure that it is about local jobs and local labour and local supply and local spend because that's what's needed and I hope that if there's something to come out of COVID it has to be that it's such a big disruption that you look at what needs to be done you know all those infrastructure projects that are there before uh, I don't want to be controversial, but you can probably think of one or two. Are they really the ones you need to do now, given the contraction in the economy? Yeah, actually, that's exactly what I was then going to ask you, really, with your experience and, you know, your outlook on from when you from when you were over here and now that you're over there. What do you think that Yorkshire will have to do, Yorkshire particularly and the North more generally have to do to come out of this and prosper again I guess because we know it's going to be difficult it's already difficult but we're already seeing that pulling together that you're talking about what what do you make of that well well it, what, what has to happen with that is government has to trust um not just local government but it has to trust the players in the north whether that's the people the politicians the institutions business the north knows what's best for the north and government needs to give them the, the, the you know, government needs to listen and, and act on it, um, not to pontificate and decide. And funnily enough, just here, um, you know, again, it's, it's not just that learning is all one way. Using the shock of austerity, you know, bringing that shock here because the, 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 the general financial crash wasn't quite felt quite as hard here as it was in the UK. Um, being able to think about austerity and how we sort of tried to shield the economy in Yorkshire, whether that was through those local labour and local supply, again, saying, don't stop infrastructure, do more of it. Don't turn the tap off too soon, because that absolutely made the UK recession uh, harder and slower to come out of. So using those lessons here are actually really helping us. There's just one thing. So um, I've done a couple of podcasts sort of explaining that, you know, approach that we made around clarity and citizens and compassion and communication. Um, and and a number of people have come back to me and said, oh, isn't it because isn't it because your PM's a woman? Isn't it? Is, is that the reason why? And I'm, I'm a lifelong feminist. And I'm going to tell you that the answer has got nothing to do with that at all whatsoever, in my view. Um, uh, she happens to be a leader who is both empathetic and strong. Um, and I don't believe the two are mutually exclusive, nor do I believe that they are female traits. Um, I think it's about the type of leader you are. 
and and the type of leader that has just flowed, you know, that has flowed not 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 just from the PM but from the civil service sort of all around. So um, I thought you might have asked me that and you haven't, and I've disappointed. I think I know I've disappointed some people, but I said no. Um, I'm super proud that we have female leaders um, really uh, showing the way. But this isn't because you're a woman. The best of leaders I've worked with have been male and female, and the worst of leaders have been male and female too. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, thank you so much, Joe, for coming on Pods and Country. It's been really interesting to hear how things are panning out over the other side of the world, and I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent. You can find this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever it is that you use, you'll find it there. I'd like to ask you to please leave us a review because it really helps other people find us and gives us a boost in the charts as well, which is really, really helpful for a little podcast like us. You could also subscribe and tell your friends, we'd be really grateful. Speak to you soon. How long have I got? 30 seconds. Okay, there's an amazing offer for Sky Q I have to tell you about. Imagine having all of Sky TV, new originals and box sets, together with all of Netflix. Plus, you get Spotify, YouTube and catch-up TV like RTE Player. Sky Q has everything you love in one place. It just makes life easy. Oh, and it's less than you think. Search Sky 30 to find out more. New Sky TV customers only. Set up fees, minimum term and further terms apply.